We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We declare to the world that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. We declare with boldness that the keys of the priesthood have been restored to man. We declare to the world that this is the day referred to by biblical prophets as the latter days. It is the final time before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. So this section of the Joseph Smith history, 20, starting on verse 27. Yeah. And it's now when uh, uh, Moroni appears to him and kind of lets him know there's a great work for him. So three years have passed away, right, from the time of the first vision, or two years, to the time Moroni appears. Yeah. Three years. Yeah. 18 to 23. So in that time... He was kind of, I don't think he received any other instruction besides the first vision, don't join anything, right? Right. And then in that three years time, Moroni comes back and tells him there's a great work for him to do. Uh, he talks about the Elijah prophecy, but then there was also some repentance Joseph has to do or something <laughs> up. And I'm curious, I don't know, I would think... I would think three years is a long time to wait. I don't know. And I'm just spitballing here because I don't know that you should put this in the thing. But the thing I thought was weird is that Joseph Smith himself acknowledges, hey, I did get caught up and carried away in doing some things I knew I shouldn't have. It doesn't go to the extent of what. But maybe he was drinking, gambling, who knows, lying or being rude. You know, almost anything back then was considered a sin. <laughs> <laughs> So all of that happens. Well, it's in, in verse 28. So he says, I frequently fell into foolish errors and displayed the weakness of youth and the foibles of human nature, which I'm sorry to say led me into diverse temptations, offensive to in the sight of God. In making this confession, no one needs suppose me guilty of any great or malignant sins. A disposition to commit such was never in my nature. But I was guilty of levity and sometimes associated with jovial company, etc., not consistent with the character which ought to be maintained by some by one who has been called of God as I had been. But this will not seem very strange to anyone who recollects my youth and is acquainted with my native cherry temperament. I think a 14 year old boy had one of the most pivotal visions you could possibly ever have in the history of the world, you know, and for a while it was probably like this burden to him, especially being persecuted all the time about it. But at the same time. He's a 14-year-old boy. I mean, you're a teenager. You you kind of struggle to take a whole lot of things very seriously. And I think that, you know, he's messing around with his friends. He's being a little bit rowdy sometimes. And what he's saying, looking back on this, is, yeah, after that, I didn't become like this perfect saint. I was still a kid. I still goofed around. I still just was wasting time and whatever. I didn't, it wasn't like suddenly I had become this, this holy monk that just spewed spiritual knowledge all the time. I, I was still just a kid and I did stupid stuff. 
And then he started feeling bad about it in verse 29. He's like, I often felt condemned for my weaknesses and imperfections, for my weakness and imperfections. When on the evening of the above mentioned 21st of September, after I'd retired to my bed for the night, I betook myself to prayer and supplication to Almighty God for forgiveness of all my sins and follies, and also for a manifestation to me. So at this point, he's saying, I want to be forgiven for these kind of shortcomings that I know I'm guilty of. And I, I haven't heard much in three years. You know, <laughs> I'm wondering if I can get some guidance here. Um, maybe he hadn't thought of it. Maybe he got his answer in the first vision and wasn't really like, I need, I need to have more. That's what I went to find out. That's what I found out. He said he would give me more information as needed. I'll just wait. But on this occasion, he's like, I need to, I need to have a prayer. I need to repent. And I need a, a little more guidance. I need to know what, what, I'm, what should I be doing? Yeah. And I think also to remember that Joseph Smith wrote this in hindsight. Right. This wasn't, it wasn't written at the moment. Yep. So he's looking back and he's kind of narrating and summarizing, you know, hey, I was very jovial. He seems like he was just like a prankster or like, I don't know, just a very happy person. I just think, like, how many of us could wait three years for further instruction while sitting in the midst of uh, persecution? Or most people that you tell that should embrace this, disregard it, call you crazy or from Satan or possessed. And and then I, I find it also funny, well, not funny, but interesting, that Moroni came to him as as he was praying, I think in verse 46, no, 29, 30? 30. Verse 30. While I was thus in the act of calling upon God, I discovered a light appearing in my room, which continued to increase until the room was lighter than at noonday, when immediately the personage appeared at my bedside, standing at the air, in the air, for his feet did not touch the floor. And then uh, he goes on to describe him and describe the robe and how wonderful this all looked. And in the end of verse 32, it was interesting where he says, when I first looked upon him, I was afraid, but the fear soon left me. He hmm. called me by name and said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God. I don't know. I think sometimes, and and I think sometimes we picture events that occur perfectly to other people. Like this happened and, and it's like, no, he had the first vision, not intending, not getting the answer he thought he would get. He thought he was going to get, hey, join this church. And then he got told none of them. And then you have to wait for a certain amount of time. And then maybe you yourself get carried away into just being distracted. And then you decide to pray. And then a messenger comes. And then you're scared because you just got done praying for wanting to know what God thinks of you. <laughs> <laughs> so you're already, you know, you're not, you're, you're praying for forgiveness and you're trying to find out. I think he says, I had, uh, that I might know the state and standing before him. Yeah. You know, and you could have fear, hey, am I condemned? Is this a destroying angel? Like, I don't know, you know. <laughs> and then this happens and then Moroni tells him, you know, that you're, you, you have a great work for you to do and that what, what you've been feeling Get used to it, basically. <laughs> there are going to be people that like you, and there's going to be people that don't like you all over the earth, even after you're dead, you know? <laughs> yep. And uh, 
and I I thought that was really interesting because I wonder if the waiting, I wonder if all that, you, you often think, could God have made it so he wouldn't have been persecuted? Could he have made it so people would have automatically accepted his vision? And in a way, I, I like to think no, because people have agency. And I think one of the lessons he's learning here early on is you have to be okay doing what God tells you to do, regardless of what other things of you, regardless of what, whether they accept it, whether they, and I think he's learning that really early. And, and Moroni, one of the first things he tells them is that God had a work for me. This is in the middle of verse 33, had a work for me to do about, and that my name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues, and that it should be both good and evil spoken of, of among all people. And then he tells them about the golden plates and the Book of Mormon and, and all of these things. But that's something that just stuck out to me. It was just he's having to learn early on the discomfort he feels. He got his answers to his prayer. But the discomfort in other people not believing you, mocking you, accusing you, persecuting you, you're going to have that forever. Which is very contrary to our kind of our our happy movie ending uh, <laughs> life, we think, when we think of stories. And we like to think the good guy always wins, you know, and all that stuff. And everything works out in the end. And in a way, it does work out in the end, but not in the way we think, you know. Right. And I just thought that was interesting because for us as members of the church, we could think we could have our little moments where we come to Christ, when we have repentance, when we have our own, in a sense, first visions. And then we 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 should be careful not to think that after that, everything is just smooth sailing. That means every, all the other pieces of your life are going to fall in place. Oh, I, I got baptized or I finally made it to the temple or and everything else. Not not to say that you won't have peace, not to say that the Lord won't be with you, but but we will have challenges. We will be tested continuously. Well, it's funny because he's now prayed twice for something very specific and gotten different answers. The first time he prayed to know which church to join, and he got the unexpected answer of, don't join any of them, just hang tight. And then this time he was praying for forgiveness and for understanding. And instead he got, okay, here's the thing. You're fine. You're, you're fine. But you've got this stuff that you need to be thinking about. Um, you're going to be getting the Book of Mormon. There's these plates. There's a breastplate. You're in thumbum. Here's seer stones. I mean, he starts kind of overloading him with stuff. Then it's scripture after scripture after scripture. How many scriptures does he quote to him? A ton, including ones that he's like. And then there's other ones that. Uh, in verse 41, he quoted many other passages of scripture and offered many explanations, which cannot be mentioned here because he's like, he, he did quoted a lot of stuff. Right. And then he kind of went on until he explains to him that you're going to be getting these plates. And I'll, he showed him in his mind where the plates would be. And that was the end of it. And then he leaves and it says in 44, I lay musing in the singularity of the scene and marveling greatly at what had been told me by this extraordinary messenger when in the midst of my meditation, I suddenly discovered that my room was beginning, was again beginning to be to get lighted. And in an instant, as it were, the same heavenly messenger was again by my bedside. He, rec he commenced and again related the very same things which he had done the first visit without the least variation. But then he adds more. 
right? He talks to me about the great judgments which are coming to the earth, great desolations by famine, sword, and pestilence. And then he went away again. And then he comes back a third time, right? And uh, <laughs> he says everything all over again. And then at the very end, he says, uh, he added a caution to me. This is in the middle of verse 46, telling me that Satan would try to tempt me in consequence of the indigent circumstances of my father's family to get the plates for the purpose of getting rich. This he forbade me, saying that I must have no other object in view in getting the plates but to glorify God and must not be influenced by any other motive other than that of building the king, his kingdom. Otherwise, I could not get them. So he visits him three times. He shares the core of it all three times, but all three times he also adds like another bit of advice at the end. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, He's praying, asking for forgiveness and a little bit of guidance. You know, what should I be doing? What should I be involved with? And instead, he gets a whole lot of information. And like you noted, it was three years between the first vision and this. And this time, you know, the, the Lord never came to him, never appeared to him without being asked. Never sent a messenger to him without being asked. And so, first of all, I think... Uh, when we're told to be anxiously engaged in a good cause, I think that involves you need to be out there asking questions. If you want to know something of the Lord, ask. It's not always just going to come to you. And then second of all, I don't know because he didn't get the plates immediately. In fact, it wasn't until 1827, four years later, that he was actually allowed to take the plates out of the Hill of Cumorah. And so maybe the Lord was like, okay, when he's this age, when the circumstances in the world are right in 1827, we'll have him, we'll go tell him about the plates. But then Joseph asked early, you know, <laughs> Joseph had a prayer and asked, what should I be doing? What, what, what do I need to know? And the Lord told him, here's what's going to happen. This is what we're going to be doing next. Just not now, just not yet. And I think a lot of times when we, when we pray for knowledge or guidance, we want to know what should I be doing right this minute? And sometimes it's, hey, there's stuff to come. There's things in the future. You're doing fine. Um, yeah, you ought to probably stop being so such a goof off. You know, you need to take things a little more seriously. But we shouldn't expect things to be immediate. Sometimes it does take time. And in this case, gosh, I mean, imagine going and seeing the plates and being like, oh, my gosh, yes, I'm ready to get to work. And then being told, oh, no, 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 you're not taking these yet. In fact, you're going to come back every year for four years and do the same thing. A lot of people would be like, why? Why? If this is such a great work, why not get started now? I'm right here. I'm ready to go. I, I think, well, I think we forget that Joseph Smith was a 14, 15-year-old boy. We expect him to be like a surely made prophet, you know, like... And he's being trained himself. I was I was looking through Saints Volume One, you know, because it goes into more detail over these passages in his life. And in uh, in chapter three, plates of gold chapter, in the first appearance, he says, "Now Joseph, beware," he said, "when you go get the plates, your mind will be filled with darkness, and all manner of evil will rush into your mind to prevent you from keeping the commandments of God." Directing Joseph, some to someone who would support him. Moroni urged him to tell his father about this vision. And Moroni promised he will believe every word you say. But the next morning, Joseph 
said nothing about Moroni um, to his father, who his father believed in angels and visions. And so he was working and Joseph was tired and, and, Joseph, and the father realized. So he told him, hey, go, go back to bed because he didn't know Joseph had stayed up all night having <laughs> these visions, right? Yeah. And so his father tells him to go back to bed. And Joseph obeyed his father and stumbled back towards the house. But he's, as he tried to cross the fence, he collapsed on the ground exhausted. While he lay there gathering strength, he saw Moroni standing above him once more, surrounded by light, asking him, why did you not tell your father what I told you? Again, Joseph said he was afraid his father would not believe him. He's not perfect, Joseph is. He was just told by an angel several times. And knowing that, hey, you can't do this alone. You need support. Your father will help you. He will support you. He'll give you strength. Maybe one of the things that Joseph is feeling all along is like, why are people turning against me? I feel so alone. I feel so. And now he's being told, you don't have to be alone. The first thing he does is have fear. No, I'm not going to tell him. Even though an angel just promised you, your father would believe you. He's gotten a lot of persecution for the first thing that he said. And his family believed him and they supported him. But I'm sure there was a feeling of, if I come with this next thing, am I going to get the same treatment? Am I going to get the same acceptance? Or are they going to be like, okay, Joseph, look, the first vision, that was great. And I'm glad that you got that guidance from God. But what is this now about gold plates? Come on, man. You know, (laughs) you're just trying to get attention again. He probably felt that way. And so he didn't want to bring it up and also, you know, didn't want to put excuses on not being able to do his work and whatever. And his dad, I I think he probably knew that his dad would believe him, but at the same time was just a little bit worried about what the consequences of bringing up this story now. And Moroni is like, look, man, I mean, at this point, Joseph's 17, 18 years old, somewhere in there. Because it's three years after that first vision. And I think that Moroni is looking at him as this young man who's going to be bringing to pass the Book of Mormon and translating it and all of that. I can just imagine Moroni, who dedicated his entire life to the Book of Mormon. This is the culmination of his life, mortal life's work. I have to rely on this kid who's been called of God to translate everything that I compiled and that my father compiled and make it available to to the world again and so i gotta i gotta make sure that he understands the gravity of this and that he understands the importance of it that's why i appeared to him three times and explained everything to him three times that's why when he was like i just need to go rest he stopped and was like why didn't you tell your father you need to follow instructions you know (laughs) you need to do as you're told because there's going to be a lot more instructions coming and if you're not going to follow them immediately then you need to make those corrections now yeah, I think that advice serves us, you know, when we, you know, the two things I see Joseph is really having to learn is one, be perfectly obedient. Yeah. And two is there's going to be people that don't agree with you, that don't like you, and that's okay. <laughs> you don't have to, it's not a 100% popularity contest, you know. As horrible as that sounds, because having the truth um, having the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing about Heavenly Father, and having a vision. Like, those are things that you would think everyone in the world would value. Everyone in the world would hold sacred. But the reality is some people don't, aren't prepared, won't be prepared. They close their hearts. And that should not impede you 
from having your faith and your obedience. And I think those two things would be the same with all of us. I mean, as you as you make covenants, as you strive to keep the commandments, as you want to know what's true, if the gospel is true, if Heavenly Father lives, if the plan of salvation is real and all this, as you want to know those things, what do you need to do? You need to, one, understand that knowing the truth isn't going to automatically convince everyone around you. And are you going to be okay knowing more? Because the more you know, the more peculiar you're going to become, the more unique, and the more not fitting in, in a sense, to everyone's else way of thinking things are going to be, right? I think Joseph Smith, he's definitely going through a training period. And and he will continue to make mistakes. This isn't the end of some of the mistakes he's made. And we shouldn't expect him to be perfect. We should expect that he's just like anyone else. Now, his imperfections later on, we're told the Lord will deal with that. He says, I will justify my servant or I will get rid of my servant. He's the one. He, Joseph Smith is not accountable to us. Joseph Smith is accountable to the Savior. Right. And so he'll figure out how he wants to deal with these prophets. And if we if we try to judge him too harshly, we need to remember there's many other examples in the scriptures of prophets who are in various training phases. I can think of Jonah giving him a specific example chooses not to, and then has to spend some time inside a, a whale. <laughs> you know? I, can, I can see other examples of Moses, where he's ready, but his followers aren't. So what happens when a prophet is ready, but, his, but the people aren't ready? Well, read Moses, right? What about when the people are ready and the prophet is ready, but you have a lot of enemies against you? Well, read Alma. There's various examples of different stages of preparation in agency being mixed in where, you know, we can easily look at Joseph Smith and say, he's a fallen prophet or he did this wrong. Or It's like I would be very careful because <laughs> he's just like everybody else. And so are we. Yeah, I think we, we see that he's still vulnerable to the world. Uh, as he gets into this whole silver mining situation, he and his family, they had a farm, but they also would basically be contract laborers for people also, especially his brothers. Uh, he and his brothers, they would go and work on other people's farms. They'd go and, you know, do a few months or a few weeks of work for someone when they needed it, and they'd be paid for that. And one of these situations um, was this guy, Josiah Stoll, who... Um, was uh, kind of a prospector. He wanted to find silver and such and uh, involved Joseph because Joseph w could use the seer stone to to look for these things. And um, they were having trouble finding any and they were having a hard time and ended up kind of falling apart. And really, Joseph was taken to court over it because there were Josiah Stoll's son was like, he's being duped by this guy. He's He's not being honest in his dealings. He's saying that he sees stuff that he doesn't, and that was against the law. And um, it's interesting because in Saints, they have a, a quite a bit about that, actually, where it's kind of like it appears as if he was acquitted because they didn't find him to be a disruptor and that he was, because of his youth, you know, it was kind of like, you know what, he's still pretty young. He's just being a kid, whatever. But the biggest 
impact that that had on the whole situation was when he goes to get the plates, I don't know if it was the second or third time, and Moroni basically calls him out on that and is like, you need to stop doing that stuff. You need to stop using this for that purpose. And it was kind of a way to, to course correct him, to say, listen, I get it. You're trying to use your abilities or you're trying to benefit your family somehow, but that's not what this is for. And you, you need to be focused on the task at hand. You need to be focused on being a representative of God. And and it's interesting that he would kind of didn't say, okay, that's the end of it. You're done. You, you can't do this anymore. We're going to find a different prophet. Instead, he was just like, look, you need to straighten up. And like you mentioned, there there's plenty of examples of that in the scriptures of times when prophets have been course corrected and told that they need to improve things or change things. But uh, eventually, he kind of gets around to representing the Lord the way he wants him to. And he goes and finally gets a hold of the plates. And I, I've often wondered this part about Martin Harris, about him taking some of the characters to scholars and whatnot. Um, they wanted to see what the scholars could tell them about the characters. Joseph wrote a bunch of them down and some translation of them. And Martin Harris took them on a piece of paper to Professor Anthon in New York at the Columbia University. And was I, I, I don't know what the purpose of that was. Other than for Martin Harris to get peace of mind that this wasn't just a sham. I don't know what the purpose of getting that proof was. Because if it comes from God and you feel like this is scripture that you found in a hill that was brought to you by God, what difference does it make if a scholar can identify them or not? Yeah. You know, I've often been a little bit confused about that because I'm like, what does it matter if the guy can prove it or not? Other than... Martin Harris saying, okay, I'll, I'll back this financially, right? Yeah. Which is what he ended up doing. I think one of the, just my opinion, which all of this is my opinion, by the way. <laughs> I think they struggled a little bit once they translated to when they go publish it. And copyright law and, and the current laws, I mean, in the Book of Mormon, it says uh, the author being Joseph Smith. And right. they had to do that at the time because uh, in order to get copyright protection, they couldn't say the author is Moroni because <laughs> it wouldn't have been accepted. It feels to me, just my opinion, that they were searching for a way of validating to the public that the book was a translation and it wasn't the work of fiction, you know, or, you know, a work of, of Joseph Smith's doing that. If we can get some sort of certification that these characters are legit, I feel it was looked more from that perspective, like the business, legal, scholarly right. perspective. But I feel like what you said, ultimately, the Lord said, no, that's not going to pan out. You're going to have to still have faith. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which kind of goes back to all the times that the church is or the early saints are trying to find a place in this world at that time in 1830, 1835, 1840, where there is a place for them in the current establishment. And they continuously are going to feel kicked out, run away, beaten up by the laws themselves that were supposed to protect them until we truly, and I think that happens to all of us. It's like we want 
we want to be a Zion people, but we also want the validation of Babylon. And that never seems to work out. And I think we learned that lesson. That for me, the, the story of the saints leaving and going west is kind of like a symbol to me that you have to let it all go. Not your culture, those things, but these preconceived notions that there's room inside the, the, the world's government for the Lord's kingdom. In that it has to go the other way. The, the Lord's kingdom has to be built first. Yeah, I think what you're saying about the Lord kind of in the end saying, you know, this is going to have to be based on faith anyway. I mean, they do get it certified, right? He He signs a document saying... These are real characters. The translation is correct. And then he calls him back and says, how did you get a hold of this stuff? And he kind of tells him. I'm sure he told him, oh, man, we got it because this angel appeared to this young man and told him where to find them in a hill. And that's where we found them. Keep in mind, it says in some of the other uh, uh, resources that Come Follow Me provides about Professor Anton, they, they, they took the characters to someone who they thought would help them with American antiquities because they're in America and that they assumed that these were from the ancient people of America, which they were. Um, and so they thought, oh, we'll take it to someone who's familiar with these languages. They didn't realize at the time until later that it was Egyptian. And until this man was like, well, I'm familiar with Greek and Hebrew and this this looks like Egyptian. Um, but he he did certify it. And when I think he found out that this was uh, something that could make him look bad. I can't put my name on something that then people are going to be like, wait, you believe in this? You know, Yeah. then he backed out, ripped it up and destroyed it. And it does say uh, eventually I left him and went to Dr. Mitchell, who sanctioned what Professor Anton had said re respecting both the characters and the translation. So there was another individual who was willing to certify it and kind of and sanction it. But in the end, it's like, you're going to face all kinds of opposition. You're going to face all kinds of doubt and people that don't want to be associated with something that they can't prove or whatever. And when it comes down to it, this whole thing is based on faith. You can, even if they had gotten 50 professors to say, yes, this is real, there would still be people who are like, no, I don't believe this story. And now I'm going to discredit all those professors because they're suckers too, right? And so there's no amount of proof that, would be convincing of people. And I think you're right. I think it was mainly just, we need to be able to get this published. We need to be able to have some sort of credibility from, from the institutions yeah. so that we can move this forward in, in an official way. But just an interesting interaction because I was kind of, I've always thought like, who cares whether they thought it was real or not, you know? Other than, like you said, getting getting that publishability going and, and that legitimacy through academia. And getting, of course, Martin Harris to say, okay, if this guy believes it, then maybe this is real. Well, I think it also starts, I don't know, setting in motion a lot of things because they they then, they they go to a, when they begin to print the book more and they go to a printing press. And he starts and he does the first run, you know, and things, and then the Book of Commandments, but then the printing press gets attacked. And as they move from one village to another, they're always left with debts. And having to settle these debts and, and leaving uh, faithful saints behind to to settle debts for the church and and it begins in motion to like okay we're not gonna go settle town we're gonna go start our own city you know <laughs> yeah. Where, where's the worst place no one wants the swamp <laughs> okay we'll go there 
And even when that doesn't work out, okay, we are going to the middle of nowhere, to the salty lake <laughs> in a in a desert, and we're going to make that a very lush, prosperous place. And I think it begins to, in a way, it starts moving the church from wanting to fit like other religions and have their way of doing things to being very independent and doing a lot of things from scratch and being more self-sufficient, you know, and in a way, trusting in the Lord. We're going to put our faith in the Lord that he said, let's go west. And I don't know, that begins to mean a lot because we think, well, what would cause somebody to leave? What would cause these people to do these great things and, uh, you know, take $2 and try to build a handcart and, you know, but I think it begins with the church and all of these people are drawn to the gospel because they're not fitting. They're, they're finding that the current establishment doesn't fit them. It doesn't fulfill the the hole we have inside that the gospel fills, you know, of purpose and identity. And, and I think we see that nowadays all around the world. We have various amounts of members and a lot of diverse people. What unites all these people? Where typically, if it wasn't for the gospel, we would have a lot of cultural differences, a lot of habits. I don't know. I've never looked at these Joseph Smith history like this before. It's like what began to mold their way of thinking and what lessons were they learning? And they were really learning. You can go try to do it your way. And after you figure out that doesn't work, you can come do it my way. And the Savior being very patient and loving. But it's like that's the same with us. How many times do we going to the Lord and asking him for how to do things ends up being the last thing on our list as opposed to the first thing on our list? Right. And even even when you do it first, like Joseph Smith, I feel like when he was praying, asking for repentance and guidance in his room and Angel Moroni appeared to him and gave him a ton of information, it was okay, you want to know what to be doing next? Here's what the next step is, but just keep in mind, not yet. Not for four more years. And a lot of times, I think for us, when we ask the Lord for help, for guidance, for peace, for comfort, whatever, the answer is, yeah, just not yet. And that should not be offensive to us. It shouldn't feel like it was, oh, that's not fair. No, it is fair. You don't know the circumstances around all of this. I don't know why he had to be 21 years old. I don't know why he had to wait four more years for that to happen. Maybe he doesn't even know why. But the the Lord either had growing and learning for him to do, which was almost certain. Or there were other things happening in the world around him that had to come fall into place for him to be able to be successful. And if he had just said, "Okay, well, we were going to wait four more years, but you're asking now. So let's get the ball rolling. Or here's the plates. Go ahead and take them. We're not ready for them to be translated yet, but if you can hang on to them without getting them stolen for four years, then we'll, we'll start to translate. No, he would have been setting him up for failure. And instead, he's like, no, here's how this is going to work. Keep coming back, which I think the keep coming back thing is, while that might appear to be frustrating or something, I think it, it shows a, a time to return and report. Come back. Let me know how things are going. Let's kind of talk about this again. Here's the plan. Everyone's got this figured out. Where do you stand? Hey, stop doing that silver stuff. Stop doing that prospecting stuff. You need to straighten that up. Okay, now come back next year. This time, bring Alvin with you. 
right? This time bring Emma with you. Um, and I, I think it was not only just a, a reassurance that he's going to be obedient, but also, are you dedicated to this? Are you going to be following the instructions as given and patient until the right time? I think that we experience that in, in a lot of ways also. I think in a lot of ways, you know, we, we might feel like we're ready. We might feel like it's time for some big change or big thing to happen to us. And we get frustrated when the answer is, yeah, but not yet. And we need to look at situations like this and realize, you know what, there's a reason why not yet. And when it is time, you will be successful and you will find a way to go through. I think we, we struggled, I struggle with something good. I, like I have a desire for something good. And maybe I'm even shocked that I have this desire. And just having the desire alone, I feel, should be a marvelous thing to celebrate. But then the answer is not right now. Just wait. Why can't good things happen immediately? <laughs> you know? yeah. um, now, there was, I forget where I read, but the, I was trying to find it. There was a place that said, sometimes the Lord likes to teach us things through repetition. What are some things that you, in, that you, can see that the Lord's trying to teach you. Well, yeah, the repetition. I mean, do you remember reading that somewhere? Um, I think so, but I can't remember where it might have been. I cannot find it for that. Which it kind of goes back to him going back to the hill, and it's like one of Not the, only that, but the things. Moroni, Moroni appeared to him three times and told him the exact same thing all three times, and then making him go back, like you said, making him go back to the hill four times, like. It might seem tedious. It might seem pointless. Why are you repeating this again? You know, but it's like we, we have the same scriptures and we still have to read them. And every time you read them, you learn something different. And even, you know, Moroni coming and appearing to you and repeating the same thing to you three times, things might stick out as being more important. Things might uh, be a little more cemented in your mind the more you hear them. Re repetition can seem tedious especially in this world where we like things fast and easy but a lot of times it's exactly what's needed for us to fully understand what's being said well i was thinking about one of the most repetitive things we do is the sacrament yeah we're supposed to do that every week prayer you know a lot of the things the lord asks us to do they're not a one time actually i don't think there is anything that's a one-time thing because all, all of our covenants, we're asked to renew them. So even though these are one-time events to, in a sense, begin the covenant, from then on you're expected to remember and recommit yourself and re-sometimes even redo the covenant. So let's look at section two. It's only three verses long. Um, it's pretty important, though, as far as where it fits into everything. This is, in the heading, it says, an extract from Joseph Smith's history relating the words of the angel Moroni to Joseph Smith the prophet, while in the house of the prophet's father in Manchester, New York, on the evening of September 21st, 1823. Moroni was the last of a long line of historians who had made the record that is now before the world as the Book of Mormon. And so this is basically, then there's a summary of, a summary of three verses, right, to help you understand what is actually being said here. Verse 1, Elijah is to reveal the priesthood. In verses 2 and 3, the promises of the fathers are planted in the hearts of the children. And so I'll just read the three verses really fast. It says, Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet, 
before the coming of the grateful, great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall plant the hearts of the children, the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. Three verses that are really short, but have a lot of meaning. So, first of all, the priesthood. Elijah was the last prophet before Christ to have the Melchizedek priesthood. And so that's why he was the one that was going to be called on to bring all of this around again. And so what does it mean, that, you know, uh, planting the hearts of the children, the promises made to the fathers? Well, everything that we've been promised as far as salvation and the ordinances necessary for that come through the Melchizedek priesthood. And also they were promised if you do these things, you'll be saved in the last day. And then the second part of that, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. It's talking about some of the work that we do in the temple and some of the work that we do to, such as baptisms for the dead and things like that. The ordinances, the saving ordinances to help those that have gone before us. And the last verse basically saying, if we did not do this work, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. Essentially meaning there are a lot of people who have lived without the opportunity to get these ordinances done. And if we just didn't provide a way for them to get done, what would be the point of any of this? So he's giving us the opportunity to use the Melchizedek priesthood, which will be restored, or what at that time, right? It is restored now, um, to be able to do these saving ordinances for the people, our ancestors, our people that have gone before us. And I think we're seeing a lot of this type of stuff happening right now, especially during the pandemic. They've seen a huge increase in the amount of work being done on Family Search and even like on Ancestry.com and stuff like that, as people have a little more time or a little more interest in kind of their roots and in finding out who they are and how they can connect with them in some way. Even people who aren't members of the church have, you know, they there's an interest in where do I come from and why am I the way I am and and all of that. And I think that that's part of that promise being fulfilled. You reminded me of something. So in Moroni chapter 8, verse 22. For behold... That all little children are alive in Christ, and also all they that are without the law. For the power of redemption cometh on all them that have no law. Wherefore he that is not condemned, and he that is under no condemnation, cannot repent. And under such baptism abeleth nothing. But it is mockery before God to deny the mercies of Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit, and putting trust in dead works. So... What that made me think of is what you were saying about the turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and children to the father is really giving the opportunity for those who have not had the opportunity to accept the gospel and make covenants to make those covenants. And that's how that scripture can be true. Because the atonement can save those individuals that haven't had the opportunity it can do that because of the sealing power, the the power and the temple ordinances and proxy baptism and the opportunity to give those people a chance. And all of that is tied, you know, within the atonement and the atonement through the atonement is how we have all of our temple ordinances that allow us in the living to make those co covenants, but also allow our ancestors to make those covenants as well through us. And so, I don't know. I thought it was really interesting. 
I think it's I think it's important to note that they still have agency. Even if they never had the opportunity to accept the gospel here on earth, if we do their ordinances in the temple for them on their behalf, I almost picture like in heaven they're saying, Hey, so and so, they're doing your work. They've done the following. Do you accept this or not? You know, is this something you would you would like to accept or not? And there may be people that are like, no, I don't I don't want anything to do with this. I don't accept that. But they still have that freedom to do that. They will. It's not like we did it. Now they now they have to accept this thing that we've done. They still have the agency to either accept the the covenants that they're going to make with God or to say, I would rather not make those covenants. That's still at their discretion. And I think that that's important because I think a lot of times um, baptisms for the dead and, and proxy work like that is looked at as, well, I don't like that the, the LDS church does that because they don't have the right to decide what my ancestors would have wanted. Right. They don't have the right to be baptized for someone else. Yeah. But it's not that we're forcing this on people. And well, I don't I don't think that God would ever do that. I think it's like, here's the opportunity take it or you can leave it it's just like missionary work i mean we are not commanded to baptize people we're commanded to share the gospel and they choose if they want to be baptized exactly it's the same thing with our ancestors we're commanded to give them the opportunity to accept these things it's up to them if they decide and whether they decide to or not we are still if we are faithful we will receive blessings Right. Just like as a missionary, if you are just obedient, do what you're supposed to do, regardless of how many baptisms you have or whatever, there's no difference between a missionary who has 30 baptisms and one who has zero, and they both were obedient. They still reap the blessings, you know. And and I think sometimes we, we can think, well, has this been done? Or, or, or I don't think this ancestor, he was a one-legged pirate, you know. <laughs> You'll never accept it. I'm not going to do it. That's not for us. For us is to we invite everybody. We want everyone to partake of this. And and whether they accept it or not, we're still. Well, it's like the quote in the Sunday School Manual is from President Oaks. It says, in the work of redeeming the dead, there are many tasks to be performed. Our effort is not to compel everyone to do everything, but to encourage everyone to do something. I think that's talking mostly to us, right? It's not. That okay, you you will have failed if not if you haven't filled out your entire family tree, and they all have all ordinances done. But what they're saying is, be be active in it. Do something. You know, start somewhere and and see. Maybe if it's just a couple of names that you're able to do, every so often. That's that's something. Encourage everyone to do something, even if it's indexing. Even if you can't go to the temple for whatever reason. If you can do indexing to help provide information for others to do that, that's also helpful. It's part of that, the fulfillment of that prophecy. And I think the, the most amazing thing about it is we're seeing it happen without even knowing. There's like three TV shows about ancestry, right? Who do you think you are? And uh, there's a couple other ones where these were network television channels that decided to have a show about genealogy. And they don't even realize how, why are they so popular? People like to hear the stories about where people come from. And you see, usually it's celebrities, so they get the, the attention. 
for the show. But it's kind of interesting to see, you know, this is this person's background and this is what this ancestor did and that's what brought them to where they are. And then people start to think about, well, what about my family? And it's interesting because these people are completely unaware of a prophecy by Elijah, right? They're not thinking, if we make this TV show, we can help Elijah's prophecy come true. They're just like, we are a TV channel and we want people to watch. But you're seeing that that prophecy comes true through that. And I think that's really cool because it just goes to show that nothing can stop the work of the Lord, even if they're completely unaware of it. I got this uh, quote right here from uh, the Institute Manual. The title is, Who are the fathers and who are the children referred to by Malachi? The fathers are our dead ancestors who died without the privilege of receiving the gospel, but who received the promise that the time would come when the privilege would be granted them. The children are those who now living, who are preparing genealogical data and who are performing the vicarious ordinances in the temple. The turning of the hearts of the children to the fathers is placing or planning in the hearts of the children that feeling and desire which will inspire them to search out the records of the dead. Moreover, the planting of the desire and inspiration in their hearts is necessary. This they must have in order that they might go into the house of the Lord and perform the necessary labor for the fathers who have died without the knowledge of the gospel or without the privilege of receiving the fullness of the gospel. And uh, I think about that. More than ever, people are asking themselves, who am I? Where did I come from? Who are my ancestors? What's my genealogy? What's the makeup of my ethnicities? You know, there's so many of these DNA tracking, DNA this, (laughs) DNA that. And then there's another part I think that happens is, and it kind of happens to everyone. And at the end of almost all of our social arguments that are being done, whether political or, or, or just online, you know, it's this sense of like, what are we responsible for and what do we leave behind to the next generation? The fathers are our dead ancestors who died without the privilege of receiving the gospel, but who received the promise that the time would come when the privilege would be granted them. The children are those who now living, who are preparing genealogical data and who are performing the vicarious ordinances in the temple. The turning of the hearts of the children to the fathers is placing or planning in the hearts of the children that feeling and desire which will inspire them to search out the records of the dead. Moreover, the planting of the desire and inspiration in their hearts is necessary. This they must have in order that they might go into the house of the Lord and perform the necessary labor for the fathers who have died without the knowledge of the gospel or without the privilege of receiving the fullness of the gospel. And uh, I think about that, and I I think um, more than ever, people are asking themselves, who am I? Where did I come from? Who are my ancestors? What's my genealogy? What's the makeup of my ethnicities? You know, there's so many of these DNA tracking, DNA <laughs> this, DNA that. And then there's another part I think that happens is, and it kind of happens to everyone, and at the end of almost all of our social arguments that are being done, whether political or, or, or just online, you know, it's this sense of like, what are we responsible for and what do we leave behind to the next generations? 
And that's the ultimate question is, what are you leaving behind to your children? What are you going to leave behind to their generation? Are you going to leave them the gospel principles? Are you going to, what are you going to do with your time? And I think that's what, for me, when I think about this promise, is, is this feeling of being self-aware of where you are in this giant scheme of the human family. Like, what happened to bring you here? And who are those people? And do you know about them? And then what are you going to leave behind for the people that come after you? And, and it's, it's a perspective, like, I never really thought much about what I'm leaving behind until I had children. And then that became really important. Mm-hmm. And just like with our children, we set up, oh, I'm going to set up a, a college fund. I'm going to set up life insurance. I'm going to set up these things for the benefit of them when you're not here anymore. Likewise, we have uh, priesthood ordinances and teachings and gospel principles that it's, what are you going to give them so they can know that you knew and you believed in Christ. And I've found that individuals who do not think like this, who don't think about what are we leaving the just next generation, tend to fall under uh, it's all about me syndrome. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's not an outlook that thinks, what am I leaving for my children? How am I respecting my ancestors, you know? That's a very much, you're the only thing that feels and thinks right now. You're the most important thing. And a lot of these gospel principles are ones where we have to continuously put in check our natural tendencies for better, higher principles. Well, it also reflects like the concept of eternity going in both directions. It goes back in time and it goes forward in time. And you look at this as why... Moroni appears to Joseph Smith. It's his job to carry out the completion of the Book of Mormon. Moroni is handing that baton to Joseph Smith, saying, hey, I compiled all this. I hid it in the hill. Here's where to go find it. You know, it's there's a never-ending bond between all of us as children of God. It, the time between us does not matter. We can still serve those that came long before us uh, by doing their work and by living a life that they can be proud of also, you know, uh, representing the sacrifices or, or efforts that our ancestors have made, whatever they may be, by living in a in a way that would be acceptable to not only them, but to our Heavenly Father. And so I think when we look at that example of, you know, why would he bring this up in that situation? He's He's telling Joseph Smith, this is a way that the hearts of the children can turn to their fathers, that they can eventually get those blessings that they were promised. But also he's saying, by carrying all of this out, you yourself are continuing on something that was done by people who came before you. Mm-hmm. You will be bringing this book to completion. And I, I think that's really powerful that the Moroni himself, it could have been any angel, it could have been Christ that appeared to him again, saying, hey, here's what you should be doing next. But I think it's really powerful that the last person to bury those scriptures is also the first person to appear in the modern day and be like, hey, here's where to find it. This is where I put it. I'm going to walk you through this process. And that, that's just really cool to me that that's how it played out. Yeah, I think it's, 
it's interesting when he tells them, you have a great work for you. I have a great work for you to do. The Lord has a great work for you to do, right? Part of that work is translating the book. But that's not it. Yeah. That's not the, the book is then a fruit right. of the restoration. We're bringing back principles that were lost to one end, to the end of Elijah, that we can do covenants. And what's the point of these covenants and all these things? Well, it's to tie everyone to the atonement. To, to tie us all together to Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of everything, the earth, everything. And so if if we don't tie everyone to Christ, then all of this has been for nothing. Right. You you can have tons of fun, you can buy a new iPhone, you can figure out how to distill water out of the ocean and, and whatever, right? But if you but if we aren't tied to Christ then we cannot be saved, and all of this would have not, it would, would be for nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And I think at first I would struggle with that thought of, man, this one thing. But then when I trace that one thing, it actually is everything, you know? It, it distills and fills all aspects of life. Your ability to learn, you're, you're going to school, your marriage, your hobbies, everything falls under that because if it's not for your betterment and your internal progression and the greatest thing that can bless you and progress you is being tied to Christ, all those things are meaningful. Your your ability to master Excel spreadsheets and to sing and to write an opera and to paint something beautiful, if it's not for the perpetuation of your life and your eternity, it really doesn't matter. It's lights out and nothing happens after you die. But if you are tied to Christ, then we can all continue and the plan of salvation can work. And that's, I don't know, when I started looking at it more like it's the atonement that they're talking about. Just as if this great deed happened and no one knew about it, it would benefit no one, right? If this great did happen and we know about it and can tell others about it and all those people can make promises and come and get to know Jesus Christ, then that becomes the most important thing for all of us, right? Let us be awake and not be wary of well-doing, for we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.